Welcome to the Brothers Zoll Podcast, a show 37 years in the making, hosted by David, John, and Simeon Zoll. Join us as we recreate some of our favorite dinner table discussions from growing up. Talking theology, culture, jokes, and everything in between. Today... We have joined together, we have come together in the sight of God and other people, actually just our computer screens, to talk about church, the big C church, the little C church, I don't know, whatever whatever people mean when they use that word, it's a loaded one, big time, one that we, the three of us, were very much brought up in, but maybe not in the way that other people were, come to find out. Uh, Well, I think it's probably worth saying that the three of us occupy slightly different roles when it comes to church. I mean, John, you're the head of now, and you've, you've not only you've been in the sort of ordained ministry working for churches for, what, 10, 15 years now? I've been ordained for 12 years, I think, and I'm maybe yeah. 13. And uh, yeah, I'm an ordained minister in the Episcopal Church, a priest so of you're- the church. You're the, head, you're the head guy now. You've also occupied other roles, like being the sort of assistant. So I had... 11 years of being number two or three. Uh, right. And then um, after all of that time, felt well prepared and it all made sense and the call came and I, I arrived here. So I'm two years into my first rectorship. Um, it's great. It's a, it's a, it's a lot more responsibility. Well, Sim, I mean, you've you've had a you, you've not you've been church adjacent for a long time, but you're you're kind of more church adjacent than than I am certainly. How would you describe your relationship to the church as it is now? So uh, I am a person who attends a church, uh, yeah. church goer. I think is the is the term. Um, yep. So uh, you know, so although I, I teach Christian theology for a living, and um, Quite a few of my students, especially in, in our undergrad degree, are, are seminarians, are ordinands um, here in the Church of England, through two of the, the seminaries here in Cambridge. And so uh, I don't feel so far removed um, in that way, but uh, I have no formal role within, um, you know, the Church of England, which is where I've been based since, since living in, in the UK. So I just, I attend local church yeah. here in Cambridge. Um, and yeah, I do think as a theologian, you, you get asked to maybe do do stuff that I might not otherwise, and you know, speak at at weekends away and uh, preach occasionally, that kind of thing. But um, but that's that's all. But over the years, you've been involved in various iterations of the church. I mean, I think you're you're married to a woman who used to lead worship at at a at a charismatic church, and then you're you've also you yourself has been the head of fellowship groups and parachurch ministry things. So you've you've had a you've had a, a tour of duty, as it were, through different types of things, but never in the the ordained or liturgical route, right? That, that's right. And I mean, like in college, I was really involved in um, the leadership of the my college fellowship group, and I joked that I was a full time minister and a part time student at that point. I mean, I, that was where a lot of my energy went. Um, and, you know, we host a Bible study and my wife is involved in worship still, uh, yeah. and Bonnie. And um, so, yeah, very, very involved, but but not in a more direct capacity. Yeah. 
And then I occupy a very strange uh, kind of my own role that where I'm on a church staff. I run Mockingbird full-time, but I'm part-time on a church staff, and I'm a licensed lay preacher in Virginia, which is, just means the bishop has sort of given me a, a official license or, you know, permission to preach to the congregation, but I also help, I work with young adults and students here at the University of Virginia, so I'm, I, I joke that I'm not ordained, but I sort of play that on TV, which it essentially means that I don't get a good pension, and that I, but I also don't have to deal with a lot of the hierarchical uh, nonsense, shall we say, that other people have to deal with. But you also don't, you know, it's a, it's a very, I'm neither fish nor fowl, and I'm happy to be that at this point. I sometimes feel like both of you are kind of walking around with um, invisible collars, uh, which you could say is true of all Christians, but in a very specific sense, the two of you are really serving both God and also the church, capital C, I would say. Which can be a real privilege. I don't know how interesting any of that is to those who are... um who are listening outside of the fact that we have slightly different perspectives on something, although the three of us were raised in going to... I mean, how would, how would you describe being raised church-wise? I mean, not, not, we're not talking necessarily about the parenting style. I would say that we went to church every week as kids. I don't recall... I recall a lot of uh, sitting there and absorbing the language, but being kind of bored, though recognizing that our father had a real gift in the pulpit and that he, I, he could sort of make you laugh. But it was an obligation... We lived right next door to the church when we were little kids. I mean, like within shooting distance, you know, you throw a stone. And then as older, we we had different houses. So there's a little bit of a remove. But for the most part, church was a fact of life, if not a particularly exciting one, uh, but also not a particularly traumatic one in any way for me. Correct. How, How would you guys describe it? I would say, uh, you know, exactly what you've described. I remember uh, always going, um, and uh, in my mind, it was always framed, it was mainly framed as sort of, of you know, dad's the minister, we got to be there. Um, and, you know, or when mom would say, you need to go to youth group, it was because your dad's the minister. You know, it was, it was never framed because, you know, God will be sad if you don't go to church. Um, but we were certainly there. Yeah. Uh, or, well, you know, just or to mom, be supportive know. of... Our father yeah. and his work. It was like we go because our dad is the minister, not so that we can make the minister look good, but so mm-hmm. that we can be supportive of our father. You know what I mean? Yeah. It just felt like that's what we do as a family to support dad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also vividly remember as a kid, uh, mom letting me read during sermons. So I didn't mind church because I could read in the middle of, during the sermon. And as I've gotten older, that seemed like a more radical thing than I felt at the time. Um, but uh, It was, it was yeah, certainly that, radical when she let you take the Game Boy into church a few times, as I recall. See, did that really happen? Because I remember that happening, but I feel like that can't oh, have it, happened. It definitely happened. I can't, I would, I would very much like give someone a glare today if they had a gaming system going, but maybe, maybe that's just my own uh, reaction to my past. But yes, I remember, Simeon, you were playing Final Fantasy with the sound off uh, <laughs> yeah, next, I, I, while, while, while the Prayer of Humble Access was happening. I think, I don't know if mom and dad were consciously playing the long game with all of us, but I feel like they did not act as though everything hinged on the extent to which we were engaged. It was much more something they wanted us to be exposed to, an environment they wanted us to grow up in, and I think maybe a place where they believed a lot of seeds were going to were being planted that would later come to fruition. And um, I think that's 
proven incredibly true in all of our cases. Uh, mm -hmm. But at the time, it never felt like you need to be here because your own existential and psycho-spiritual well-being hangs in the balance. Yeah. You know what I mean? I never felt, like you said, my earliest memories are the three of us at Grace Church in the city, in New York City. Um, and mom would have the three of us on the pew, or maybe Simi, you weren't even there yet. It was just David and me, and she had a role of lifesaver. And every hymn that we made it through without basically erupting into a fist fight, we both got a lifesaver. And oh my that was gosh. when I first. I, I'm just recalling that right now. And do you know that's why the, I have I have a memory of lifesavers as a kid, and that's what it's from. Yeah, wow. and not only I'm that, serious, it, I, it was usually it was. I always wanted a red one. I remember. Yeah, I always know? wanted the red ones. We would fight over the red ones. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but the other thing, not is, the green, please. But yes. then one time she showed up with butter rum lifesavers, <laughs> and that was just like I don't know what to make of this. <laughs> that didn't work. That didn't work, John. I mean, I I recall from my youth at least that you were particularly vocal and not really wanted to be at church yeah which is, I, uh, I how would you do, look back I on thought, that? <laughs> i mean my only impression of church until i was about 19 was that it was boring that was it, it, it i had no sense of how anything we were doing on sunday morning in any way factored in or related to day-to-day -day life experience it just to me they were just two parallel tangents that never overlapped or um had any sort of point of, you know, cross-section or anything. So at no point were your ears open to like what was going on, even though you were there every single week, essentially, at least until, you're, until you went off I to mean, boarding I school. I mean, if people in Sunday school asked me things, I remember uh, getting into a fight with Janet Broderick as a little boy, and she tells, still tells this story, um, that uh, she was teaching me Sunday school all those years ago at Grace, and it was the story of the widow's might. Mm -hmm. And I was arguing... Uh, that a dollar is still more than a penny. And I, I must have been four. And the other thing that was the hardest part for us looking back, and now I'm in these battles with my own daughter, um, was getting dressed up. For us, you know, in our tradition, yeah. you know, it was a relatively formal experience and we were made to put on ties. And I'm convinced still to this day that the clip-on tie was invented for um, mothers to better be able to get their children off to church, you know? I, yeah, I think that's probably true. I remember that. I also remember as we got older, it was the waking up that was hard for both of us, but especially you. It's funny, <laughs> I don't even remember that. But it's I all also, true. I also remember the... Um, the so the boredom thing, and then also the social awkwardness of going to Sunday school, and especially I was we were moving around a lot at a point when I was kind of remembering, you know, I was eight, nine, ten, eleven. We were always in some new church where I didn't really know the people and and things, and there was this kind of social I had to go, and I didn't know anyone, and it just it felt like going to school for the first time, uh, and it was, it was fine. It was you know I didn't hate it, but it was definitely that that's a, that's a strong memory. Yeah. Wow. Do, you, do you remember when? Um, Dad brought the Archbishop of Canterbury to St. James on James Island in South Carolina. Yeah, he, they, they took my room. I had to go sleep somewhere else for like three weeks while they stayed and with I, us. I just remember him cutting the grass, at like mowing the lawn. And yeah, thinking, and what, what? shrimping with Eileen, you know, and it was, it was so normal. And we were told to call him George. Or I remember lunch with John Stott, you know, and he was just asking me about 
whether I was liked math or English or science in school, you know, and dad, you know, always saying this is very famous, very famous. And, but it, all of that was sort of lost on us in a way that was really wonderful looking back because it kind of demystified uh, the mm -hmm. church as an institution in a way that mm -hmm. has been a blessing and a curse. My dad, you know, told me when I got ordained, son, I wish you didn't know all the things you already know about the church on the front end of your ministry. Um, huh. And, uh, you know, I understand what he was getting at, which is basically that it's still, a, in many respects, a very human institution. It's in no way exempt from all of the same things that plague any other institution. As I've gotten older, I've realized how rare our experience of church was, because um, a lot of a lot of people who grew up going to a mainline church either just find it completely irrelevant now, a, a sort of an interesting curiosity about their past, or they went grew up going to a more sort of evangelical or sort of strong or even fundamentalist church. Legalistic. And they hate everything it stands for, and a lot of their life has been lived sort of in in response to that. Um, and yet, we had neither neither tra traumatizing nor particularly, uh, uh, you know, a mediocre experience. You know, we had an inspiring experience of church. But here, are the, here are two of the questions that I think we could we could talk about right now as as men, brothers in midlife, from approaching it from slightly different angles. The first is. Why, my friend of mine wrote a book recently called Why Would Anyone Go to Church? And he's a guy in Canada. It's a great book. Kevin Mackins is his name. I recommend it. But he's the one who started a church in a very post-church context in Calgary, I think. And he, he wrote a book called Why Would Anyone Go to Church? So I want to hear from you that, which is sort of like the pitch for church. But then I also want us to say, like, what is church for? You know, we're, we're recording this during a pandemic when church in its... I don't know, usual or conventional form has ceased to exist in a lot of ways. So that's the two questions. Let's, let's, I want to hear from you first, and I've got plenty of thoughts about it, but why would anyone go to church? And then secondly, what, what is church for at its, at its best? Um, so what's your pitch? Well, um, we have in the month of November often what's called stewardship month, where mm -hmm. we basically... Um, you know, appeal to our parishioners to continue to support our church with their time, treasure, and talents. But in particular, we're looking and hoping for pledged support for the next upcoming year. And we have different parishioners come up during our little announcement break to share a very short, what I might call a testimony, or just a little bit of their experience of what their church, St. Matthew's in this case, means to them. It is so moving for me uh, to hear the way people characterize their experience. And I had one uh, parishioner this year, and she put it as simply as, and answered both questions. She said, I, I didn't grow up in the Episcopal Church and always sort of felt like I was not really fully a member. And then the message of the gospel started to actually like change me 
It changed the things I valued. It changed the things I see. And she said, and what it's become for me is I walk into the church on a Sunday morning and I can feel my blood pressure go down. It was mm-hmm. that simple. That's all she said. And I was so moved because the truth is I didn't know that that was how she experienced things. And I just thought, if nothing else, that is such a great um, and convincing um, reason for attending a church. If indeed you experience that in a church, you know, it's wonderful. Often a newcomer will, what happens when they're about to walk through the door? I'll bet you their blood pressure goes through the roof. Mm. And uh, the other thing I will say, in almost every case I know of a person who doesn't like church or has had a bad experience, it boils down to the word legalism or moralism. It was all about morality and it was basically a place where they felt judged. Yeah. For, yeah. And, and so to me, that is so often the undoing piece. And what we were fortunate to grow up in, I would say, in a nutshell, is we never grew up in a legalistic church. Yeah. And we are so fortunate because that, it turns out, is really in many ways, that's the exception, whether you grew up Catholic or non-denominational or Baptist, you know, or, or PCA. I mean, it's so much legalism around in so many different denominational traditions. And a lot of it's implicit legalism. It's not always explicit. You can, right. you can have someone preaching the gospel of grace and salvation and by faith alone, but you still have... Um, by grace alone, through faith alone, but you still have an implicit legalism of you're not enough, you need to be different in order to uh, fit in here in some way. One more thing that another parishioner said in this last few weeks during our the stewardship talk, a different parishioner got up and she said, for me, the church is a refuge from secularism and politics. Hmm. And hmm. that is deeply affirming for me of my approach to ministry, and it's not necessarily popular. Many churches get very political, including in my denomination, and that's fine, uh, but that's not my approach. And for her, similarly, we really do believe in God. We really do believe that God is actively at work in the lives of people, loving them and guiding them like a shepherd does sheep. And we don't make any apologies about that as, as a church you know, as a Christian leader, right? Um, And for her to say it was a a refuge from secularism as well, uh, that just meant the world to me. She walked up to me so gracefully and took my crown of thorns. Come in, she said, I'll give you shelter from the storm. What about you, Mm. Sim? I, that's amazing what John just said. I uh, I'm reminded of um, we went through a phase where some churches were really uh, not not doing any of those things for us um, uh, <laughs> early in my marriage uh, to Bonnie, and um, the we finally landed in a church for for a number of years until we left Cambridge again, um, where uh, the 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 vicar was a woman named uh, Angela Tilby, and the very first time we walked in the door, um, we were going through a hard time, and the sermon was about she said church is a place to bring your love and your grief. And as soon as she said that, we were like, oh gosh, we can actually, we've got some grief and we need a place to put it um, in particular. And uh, so to me, you know, when it's, you know, at, at its best, when it's functioning remotely correctly at church, that's the, the, the lowering your blood pressure. It's a place to go and to, 
with your with your problems, with your needs, with um, what's been going on that is hard, and to see it, um, to put it before God, to see it uh, maybe a little bit as God sees it, and to be ministered to in it. And uh, that's that's the, the starting point. And that would be true, I think, you know, whether one sort of is or is not already kind of part of the church, you know, as a, as a, as a Christian in some way. The other thing I would say, um, so in addition to a place to bring your grief, I mean, the, the, the most wonderful experiences I've had of church, the ones that have been, uh, you know, electric and that I just wish um, uh, all, I think anyone, you know, in the world who experienced what I experienced in, in two distinct church settings would, would, would have, you know, uh, it would have changed their lives. So one was in college, a little bit more of sort of a youthful kind of thing. But um, I got there's a church initially I went I didn't like, and but basically because all my friends were there, all my Christian friends were there, and there was a very warm, very honest, very loving um, pastor. It was a non, it was a four square church actually, um, and I found that I just looked forward all week to showing up in the evening. It was always in the evening because they knew college kids aren't going to wake up. And uh, just to go and be there, Bonnie was there, you know, before we were dating, uh, leading worship. But um, and I just the sense of of community, of being with other Christians in a way that was different from my being with people in my, you know, social club or in uh, class or whatever. There was something deeply wonderful and powerful, a sense of shared purpose and honesty, and I, like I just belonged. I felt the deep sense of belonging with others in in that context. The other one is um, going, when over the course of high school, I while you guys <laughs> abandoned me for boarding school, I was uh, living at home through high school with my parents, um, and dad was at the cathedral in Birmingham, Alabama. And as I kind of had a was sort of awakening as a Christian, I was being part of this, you know, low church, liturgical cathedral worship with dad as this wonderful preacher. And especially I think of Christmas Eve services as being where these, there's this amazing moving sermon about light and darkness, you know, and, and all that you sort of could want. Incredibly beautiful music that touched these deep heartstrings in my, from my childhood and just about life. Uh, and being with everyone dressed up in this sort of a sense of, of awe and um, seriousness of the best kind. And, you know, uh, those, uh, those are those what I, if church were always like one of those two things, um, the world would be a different place. I remember there was, I think it was Marilyn Robinson, the writer, made some kind of observation about how the phrase Christmas and Easter Christian, you know, that someone who comes to church only on Christmas and Easter, um, shouldn't be a pejorative as it sometimes is in church settings. And if you're, by the way, if you're a minister, just a just a public service announcement, never ever use that uh, phrase in public. It only makes people feel self-conscious. But she said the reason that, that perhaps one of the reasons that that is the case, that people 
tend to show up on Christmas and Easter and not the other days is that those are the days that they can be basically assured that they're going to hear some good news. <laughs> like that they're, <laughs> that they're not going to get a ton of, you know, the, the preachers, the headlines that week, or they're going to hear something about the old story. They're going to hear something about Jesus. They're going to hear something about God coming into the world and, you know, the salvation and forgiveness of sins. And I thought, and maybe if that's not conscious, then, then at least it's working on people subconsciously. Yeah, just you know something what? religiously positive, right? Yeah. People I mean, associate the, Christmas with a good, good, positive, upbeat message, and Easter too, you know? Yeah, and, and I think that you can, that there's some, really something to that. When people ask me why, why you'd go to church, um, which I do get asked about sometimes, though less than I used to, I think, um, is I say a couple different things. One of the things, well, in, in, in the book Seculosity I wrote, I talk about how church used to be the place where you could, um, your, your, your clergy person was your forgiveness person. And we all have so much stuff that we're accumulating, so much shame, guilt, um, simply misapprehension and anxiety. And as Simeon, you said, it's a place to bring your grief as well as your love. But it's a place to, what do you do with all of this? Do you simply, you know, funnel it into your workouts or do you simply, projected onto your spouse, or is there a place you can actually take these things? And I don't think it's any accident that as we've lost that central clearinghouse for forgiveness, um, that people have then funneled it into all sorts of less, I would say, healthy uh, avenues, and it, and it kind of comes back to bite you all the time, because everyone's trying to manage their guilt with everything they're doing. Um, the other thing, though, I think is... Um, uh, and this is what I'm saying here is almost independent of the transcendent or spiritual aspect of which you know you're there to worship God and to and to hear God's voice and to experience God and maybe even hear you know uh, talk to God. Uh, but I think simply it's a it's a vehicle of gratitude and a, a church that is is lowering the blood pressure will be a church where somehow you walk out every week feeling grateful you get you get in touch with some kind of more vertical perspective or eternal perspective something the which it, it, it transcends the um, whatever the inner game of tennis or the um, you know culture wars some sense of like we're born and we're dying and and life is full of trouble and God loves you still and and and, and he loves you so much that you know here is his son uh, maybe that's in communion that you experience that maybe that's simply in the the, the liturgy or the words maybe that's in singing songs but you walk away feeling like oh I, I've got I do have something to be grateful for no matter how terrible life is and those are two just sort of secular pitches that that go beyond well you use the word vertical and I think that I was is just thinking that you yeah. were Simeon that yeah, is such a, a great word that in church I often use the word existential in the place of vertical but really what we achieve in church is a verticality where we lift upward and outward and above uh, from the horizontal plane, which is just all of our, the things immediately on the ground in front of us to the side and to the left and the right. And I find that good church is almost as good as it is vertical. Yeah. And that bad church is almost as bad as it is horizontal in its emphases. Mercy, mercy on the defenders. Happy on the low pretenders. A little help for all life's losers. A little truth for the mind abusers. Do you guys remember when we were growing up, I think in the bathroom in various of our houses, there was this amazing print, probably one of you have it or yeah, something. Yeah, the Norman, no, the Norman Rockwell? The Norman yeah, Rockwell. Yeah. Uh, Explain where, it. So. Uh, it's all these people walking across in front of a church in, in New York City, I think, and they're it's all St. looking Thomas down. St. Thomas Fifth Avenue. 
It's St. Thomas Fifth I Avenue. Knew, I knew you'd know. The uh, they're all looking down, and uh, uh, and then the but the person is putting the um, uh, they're putting the message up on the message board in the little white letters, uh, and it says "Lift up thine eyes." And it's just so brilliant. And there's a stream of pigeons representing the Holy Spirit, city yes. pigeons flying over their heads, and they're all looking at their feet in the as they. Oh, but a place you can go to lift up your eyes and to realize that your eyes have not been lifted up this whole time, this whole week. And today so, you could sub. That was you know the late '60s that he was making that. And today everyone would just be staring down at their phones. But it, there's yeah, no same posture. There's no there's the same posture. It actually hasn't changed that much with people holding devices. Yeah, I remember w- Will McDavid described it one time as like say you're sitting in a library and you're you're studying a book and all of a sudden some beautiful beautiful song comes on and like at first you can ignore it and you're still you know and maybe it gets a little annoying. Then finally the the, the it's so compelling that you sort of st- stand up and you're not like making a conscious decision but you stop what you're doing and you listen. And I think that that's a, it's kind of a straightening up almost of the, uh, uh, that the, that's the gospel's such good news that they can, it can have that power by the Holy Spirit. David, Simeon talked a little bit about those two formative experiences, but what, what about yours, Dave? Where does this material kind of, because Simeon, I think, in fact, even though he's the youngest, is the first one who really gained any personal traction, as I see it, <clears throat> with the faith. And then kind of converted both of us from the bottom up a little bit. Well, yeah, I think it has. It, it probably informs my own what I would call, at this point, very radical low churchmanship. And that, like, my best experiences of church were in small groups and at summer camps. <laughs> mm. And now I get to be a part of a wonderful congregation, and it's a beautiful, thriving Episcopal church here in Charlottesville. And I got to be part of a church plant in New York that, while it didn't work out, it was still, there was something very beautiful and, um, you know, um, fragile, but also... Um, uh, precious about it and and even transformative and then I was also part of another church in, in Manhattan that I, I was full of outcasts and weirdos and it was just wonderful in a lot of ways but I, I would say that my induction into the church was outside of the occasional transcendent moments as kids and I remember those Christmas Eve services myself I also remember summers when our father had a summer chapel gig out in the Hamptons and I remember that being sort of a, a very f- fun a different vibe of church and having lemonade outside afterwards and there's just being a positive experiences of this and not as many cringeworthy things as I've sort of experienced as an older man, but um, I was part of a small group that took me in when I was going through a very hard, difficult breakup. And um, I was talking to a therapist about it recently and she was just saying, I was constantly making excuses for this because I was a little embarrassed about who I was at that time. But she says, it sounds like you really encountered a truly welcoming and like kind of safe community there in a way that I hadn't. And one of the things when I talk about to my students of, uh, of my college students is they go off into their careers and most of them for the, at least the first couple of years of their career, they do not go to church. They just, because Sunday is the only day they don't have to work. Um, and that's changed maybe a little bit pandemic wise. I don't know, but I always say like what my, the pitch I make to them is I say, let me tell you six and a half days a week, all you're going to hear from the world is do more, be more, try harder. You are what you do. Um, get ahead, climb that ladder, et cetera, et cetera. Um, or uh, you're, you're way too far down on the ladder. There's no hope for you. You're going to end up in a ditch somewhere. 
And I say the church at its best will be the one place where you can be guaranteed that you'll hear something a little different. Uh, you'll hear something, some grace is so rare in the, just in the world. And maybe that's what you mean, John, when you're when your parishioner says a, a, a haven from secularism, that's what I consider to be secularism, is this booming voice of the law <laughs> of uh, you, you are only as good as you are able to make your life, uh, and you're only as happy as you're able to engineer for yourself, or you, and you only have as much as you're able to take. So um, that, to me, I guess I experienced in that small group a little shred of, uh, and my, my quote-unquote secular non-church friends, they all sort of bailed. They abandoned me when I was going through a tough time. So I experienced an element of church there, and there was music, and there was prayer, and there was some uh, Bible study, and it was that... I don't remember what the content was, I do though I do remember listening to some Tim Keller sermons and those being very important. Um, but I don't remember the content so much as the the, the emotional, um, Simeon, the affect, the the the. the that sort of Holy Spirit. The second thing is I was worked as a youth minister and worked as summer camp for um, five years, and the experience you have of uh, Christian community in that regard, where you watch people come alive, uh, boring people become interesting, uh, scared people become confident, uh, you know, ugly people become beautiful, uh, unpleasant people become friendly, you, and and never by being told to. You just hear you're at. I was at these evangelistic camps where the basic gospel message was being proclaimed really to teenagers. But what was really happening, as well as that, was that the 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 entire you were becoming a church, <laughs> and uh, and you sort of always wish you could stay there. Um, and people had to then go back into the world. And so, but once you've had that enough, it's not just a bunch of people living together. It was living together in under the sort of the word of the gospel that was very transformative for me. Even though I was working for this organization, it was ministering to me more than I think anyone else. So those are two two experiences I'd give. Yeah. Mine, mine, similarly, remember my college girlfriend dumped me. And I, because I had not had alienating experiences of the church growing up, um, felt, well, maybe I'll try this. You know, I'd already explored a lot of other avenues. Like I was the, the leader of the Zhao Zen meditation group at Kenyon College. I'd taken classes in becoming a Reiki master, I kid you not and uh, kinesiology and all kinds of New Age, Eastern stuff. I basically wanted nothing to do with a spirituality that looked Christian, uh, the one of my upbringing. But eventually, when the girl dumps me, I go back to a service of morning prayer, but my parents weren't there. And I opened up the prayer book, as we do, and we said the prayer of confession. And it was a prayer that I had memorized as a youth, like as a kid. It had been every Sunday of our upbringing. But I didn't you know, recall it at all. And mm-hmm. as we got to the part, we have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done. Uh, it, we have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. That line, mm-hmm. for me, in that moment, I thought, how the hell does this ancient book know and understand the pain I'm feeling better than I did up until a moment ago when I read it? And for me, it was like all of this, these old, like I use the word seeds that had been planted. You know, mm. here was a prayer that in some weird way was a part of my inner archaeology from my childhood. Yeah. That in that moment went from being the equivalent of boring content 
to being deep insight and understanding. It conveyed understanding of me in my pain and explained it to me. Even though it wasn't like a revelation about God, and I did find after it, I just felt a little better. But it was, uh, it was more that this is a place where the pains of my heart are understood and being addressed wow. with love. And that is basically both the beginning and the end of the story, you know? Let me ask you guys this then, because, you know, right now we're living in a time when, especially the expression, let's face it, of church that we we grew up with um, is increasingly rare, if not on life support, and the numbers of the the mainline church in America, you know, there's a lot of hemming and hawing about it, but it's, it's basically on its very last legs. And I don't think it's a, there's some wonderful examples that I'm very proud to be a part of, but um, there are more charismatic and Pentecostal versions of it, which are booming. There's Roman Catholicism, which seems to be doing very well in certain areas. But what we grew up with is um, fracturous and feels a little irrelevant. Um, But our father a couple years ago had a tongue-in-cheek list of things you can do to shrink your church as quickly as humanly possible. And then he also had a thing, a list of things you could do to, to grow your church, because people are always looking for these sorts of things. Um, what, what's your vision for, for any of what I've just said? Um, how would you shrink a church? How would you grow a church? What is the future of the church? What's your... Why does it go wrong so so terribly wrong in so many cases? And and what what was it about it that what we've just we've all just described what was going so right, or is it completely just a mystery? Sim, what what do you think? Well, um, so uh, a couple. Of, you know, I live in Europe where those dynamics um, seem even stronger, even more. Um, uh, sort of inevitable or, or, or something like that in some ways. And um, I, uh, I also, in the, in the Church of England, um, the exact kind of thing that we grew up with, which I would call a sort of a, a low church liturgical with an evangelical theology, uh, you know, prayer book. But um, anyway, that, that doesn't really exist over here. If you're, if you're low church or evangelical, it, you have a projector screen and, and not much of a liturgy usually. And uh, if you're... Um, Anyway, using the prayer book in a more traditional way, you're you're, you're definitely in a different place on the on the candle. So, um, I f- I feel like I'm in exile from the church that I grew up with. Um, no church I've attended since moving to England in 2004 has been anything like what I grew up with, and what I think you guys probably produce uh, something much more like what we grew up with than 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 exists most places. You know, on a on a Sunday by Sunday basis in your churches, and that's a, a great sadness of mine. Um, to, that I don't, you know, the, the kind of church I really feel I most belong in, I haven't, I don't get to go to, um, and doesn't really exist much. The uh, in terms of 
how to grow a church. So I'm very sympathetic, and this is part of where John and I has maybe have different views. I, I I think that a lot of um I think there's a lot of there's very I I don't I assume that I will not get I will get extremely little out of a sermon when I go to a church just from experience. I've just learned to assume that the sermon is not going to be the thing that will probably help me. Uh, you know, in a given week when I go, it it might be it might. Um, but it's, I'm a long way from, from the kind of really transformative preaching ministries that, um, that I grew up with. Uh, and so, um, what I consistently sort of do get something out of, and I think a lot of people share this, has more to do with, with, with music. Um, basically I think a lot of people actually get their heart, their blood pressure gets lowered from, from the songs they sing. especially in these sort of very emotionally immediate sort of contemporary uh, worship styles. I mean, you look at the number of people who actually have listened to, you know, a song by Hillsong on Spotify and whatever else you might say, it's, it's, it's connecting with a huge, huge number of people in a time when many things are really not, not connecting. And I'm also in an academy where there's a bit of a knee-jerk assumption that, that, that more, more cerebral and more liturgical is, is better. And I sort of say, well, and yet every single one of us is here because of a much more emotionally immediate ministry at some point in our past. Um, and uh, we sort of pretend that's not the case. So, uh, to, so partly, the, you know, to, to, to sort of channel that kind of emotional immediacy and, 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 and the way, you know, it's not, it's not just generally emotion, it's specifically Christian religious emotions. You know, it's, you, you see it, it's like a Christmas carols, you know, you read them, they, they bring up, they bring, you know, traditional Christology and classic texts, and they bring them to life emotionally for you. That's why they're so amazing. You know, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in the tonight, you know, you know, that, that, that's, that's what that is. And so I think a lot of this basically contemporary worship and sort of charismatic, sort of low-key charismatic style, which is what, what, what I have ended up in over here, um, it, it does basically connect regularly, emotionally, at least to some degree, in a way that keeps you coming and keeps you finding you're getting something out of church and you're connecting and you're feeling the presence of God, you're feeling connected to God. And so what I... You know, one way of looking at what I've done with my life is to try to at least uh, help channel those kinds of energies and impulses and insights and help them deepen their theology to do better with suffering, to, to avoid legalism, to be better preachers, uh, to not fall into certain kind of traps. So if I can help produce, you know, theology that will maybe help train ordinands, you know, and so on to, to be able to take those advantages and and deepen and extend them and, um, and bring out the deep intellectual and artistic and cultural depth of the religion and those kinds of things, but, but as an addition, not as a, not as a replacement. Because um, I still think, fundamentally, people like to make fun of, I don't know, Billy Graham sermons about, you know, um, what are you going to do when you die and, uh, you know, preaching the law and then preaching the gospel in a very traditional sort of heavy-handed way. And, but honestly, that stuff at its best still is so powerful. And so helping that be the, its, its best self, um, I think churches like that are, are where my hope currently is. Um, and yet, even as I speak, I feel a nostalgia for what we grew up with, which had a lot of that, but in a it communicated the the subtlety and like you the prayer i was teaching the prayer but we were talking about the how the the 1662 holy communion service in the book of common prayer 
in the Anglican tradition uh, is a kind of leads you through an emotional sequence in a very profound and subtle way. And actually the exact uh, prayer that you were just recounting and that it was so important for you, John, we were talking about how it is so beautifully calibrated to allow someone compassionately to to see sin without feeling judged. That that the language we aired straight from that way is like lost sheep. It's communicating compassion, like you're you're dumb. <laughs> you know, it's not saying you're bad. It's saying you're you're dumb like a sheep. You know, that all things, very subtle harmonics of the language there are working to to help you. In addition to your your past and your childhood, you know, to to, to be, be something you can really connect with. And so, if we really lose that, and that's so for me, and we were in that class, I sometimes I'll just start going to the next section without even having to look at the page because I have the whole thing memorized from 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 childhood and high school. Yeah. And um, I, I, I wish there were more of that. I find that's an enormously sturdy, powerful, rich, resonant deposit that I that, that helps has kept my faith alive and interesting for a very long time in a way that I, I find it very hard to see how we'll get back to that um, in a you know sitting in Europe where when you know very few people go to church anymore. I think, Sim, we all three of us totally agree about the. If there is not a deep emotionally uh, connective component to the ministry ex- and experience of ministry in church, it's just basically a head trip or a waste of time or um, a, a play, you know. And I, I totally agree with that. And for me, if basically if the tr- service is not speaking to the heart rather than the head, and in particular to, to my heart. I, I think that that's really what, what, um, what makes church life-giving for people. They come in and they can't believe that you were talking about the things and meeting them uh, in the arena of their own anxiety. And I am always personally trying to, in my sermons, target the place in the people's minds so that they almost would say, how is it that he's reading my mail? Mm. Um, And yet taking them to a place in those thoughts that they've never gone before, thanks to the revelation of God's grace. Um, So that's, to me, very important. If we're not actually speaking to real life, it's basically a head trip or uh, a sort of play acting. You know, it's like playing church. There was a line, there was an old Bishop Moore, I think, in New York, who said, for years I put the worship of the church ahead of her Lord. And I think that is a powerful quote that I often think about. Um, but I, for me, it's as simple as, are we actually speaking to people in spiritual terms in a practical way that addresses them where they're really living? So what I love is that the people who edited and formulated and crafted the Anglican liturgical tradition, they said, we need to address the inner person and the, um, the emotional person, if we are going to actually do effective work in the spreading of the message of Jesus Christ in the world. And that is so awesome. And that's what I, so I 
as you may have already picked up and have alluded to, I am still engaged, I guess, in what David would say is the dying project uh, of trying to keep the old thing alive in the classic sense that I grew up with it, that I love, breathing fresh life into the same old thing that um, many say is now outdated, outmoded, but I think that the content there is deeply life-giving and that it still speaks to people from any background, from any culture. And what I'm, so what I'm, I'm into is, is classic, you used the word low church, Sim, earlier, and that's the right word, but that's a word that has so misconstrued. In most cases these days, low church means informal or it means no right. church. And the word low church traditionally really has a huge amount of content to it. It means tasteful understatement. And it means unassuming Christianity. John, I would love in the future when these things are possible to go with you to the city churches in London. Christopher Wren helped build a whole bunch of churches after the Great Fire of London, and they represent exactly this kind of you know the, the, the what what old school you know what low church used to be, which is this deeply elegant, word centered but but understated and beautiful and and prayer book based. Uh, so these lovely pulpits, these amazing wooden. I mean, it was just incredibly beautiful and tasteful and uh, and moving, and yet still oriented around around the pulpit and around uh, the kind of vertical reality of of God. Anyway, there there were some of the best instances of that in 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 you know wood and stone that, that there are in the world, and there there's a one every hundred meters uh, in there. There's a I remember a few years ago there was a bunch of uh, people talking about you know um, church was making a mistake of trying to be cool like sort of a skinny jean preachers and sneakers idea of of church needing to be cool and it was written by um, Rachel Held Evans I think wrote this something for CNN or Washington Post and and what it basically said is that uh, young people coming to church don't want the church competing on the same stage as like TED Talks or MTV or whatever it is. They don't want they don't want a Christian version of what what they've seen somewhere else or what's worked somewhere else. They want the church to be otherworldly and weird and. Um, and I, I think there was like a real truth to a lot of that. At least in the young people I talked to, they don't. They actually don't want a sort of a, a poppy version of of church, um, and yet what I remember that the pre- the the article concluded with basically a sense of what what they really want is sort of sort of to be challenged in not for personal piety but for social progress. And it was like you just wait wait a second. I was with you in the first part, but then it, it you, what you say church would just grow if we just got on board with sexier social causes or just like the law took a more collective form rather than a individual form. And I thought to myself that's I don't think that's will actually keep people in the pews. I think it'll get them in the pews for a little while, but they'll then go on to organizations that are doing a better job of making those changes in society. One of the things that we've we, we've talked about a little bit and alluded to, or I, I, th- I think, but it's something our father once said in relation to church, and he says that the gospel of God's grace for sinners, um, as it mediated by the Holy Spirit, is always at odds with institutions. 
it will always be at odds with institutions. That which seeks to basically confine it, concretize it, draw boundaries around it, and make it a into something that's replicable and deliverable. And um, I have, I will say that I have found that to be true. That the gravitational pull within the churches that I've experienced is, is always against. <laughs> <laughs> the grace of God and toward a safer expression of, of kind of morality and um, predictability. And I can, as I've gotten older, I can sympathize. I can even empathize because I have that own tendency in myself. And yet it hasn't left me with a huge amount of hope for the church as church, because although it's miraculous that any kind of gospel has been preserved in the church, I have view the so many of my clergy friends and so many people who have given their lives to the church have essentially been killed by the church. And as you get older, the body count mounts. And I'm not just saying that as a, something that... Can like, you give an example, though, Dave? Because I think... Just an example where the church is an institution and the grace message have been seemingly pitted against each other. Uh, sure. I would say that uh, a friend starts a, a quote-unquote friend, starts a ministry preaching uh, the grace of God and the uh, people in the higher up in the church get very nervous that people are going to stop giving money. And so they take that service away from the young person who is leading that service. I can name, I could, if you, if, if I wasn't going to get in trouble, I could name four examples of where that's happened, where the ego has been under, the ego and the safety as a result related to money and uh, security has been under threat by the message of the gospel and has resulted in ministries being squashed. That hasn't happened yeah. to you. I mean, basically the but, church, no, it has. But I've, it has. I've watched bi bishops do I it. Have, I've watched higher ups oh, do yeah. it all the time. And I've watched, um, there's never a sense of... Uh, the, the, the church protects itself first and its message second, and hopefully the two are not at odds. Yeah, that's what that's I mean. Of, I know I'm getting yeah. fired up, but that's what I... Yeah. As the years go by, I think, oh, I'm so glad I'm not ordained because... It's been my experience, too, but I wouldn't use the word always. That's okay. all. All right. And well, that's, that sounds like Dad. I do believe that ha when I said earlier... Dad said, I wish you didn't know all the things you know on the front end. I think this is all the stuff you're referring to. Yeah. The, the, there's a line in Grace and Practice where he says, um, up close observance of the church always amounts to disappointment and disillusionment. <laughs> and that is something I always buffer new members of. I say, come, get ready. Uh, you're going to love it, but you're going to be disappointed at some point. Yeah. And that's the moment when we need you to stay to keep the message alive. That's what Nadia Boltz-Weber used to say yeah. in her newcomers classes. Rather than at the moment where you become disillusioned and disappointed, you think that's the moment when you need to leave. Right. Um, that's beautiful. Dave. Yeah. Yeah, that is. Um, I, uh, I, you know, I've I've seen it too. Um, and uh, my the my question is how. Um, well, there are two, two things. One, like the logic of that at one level is to go is just to despair basically about institutions. Yeah, uh, you know, or or, or to, to you know, sort of the, the kind of what do we then do instead? Question. <laughs> Start your um, own institution. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, just for example, uh, just kidding. I'm joking. That, that, yeah, that's the, that's the problem uh, of the Reformation in a nutshell. Th there are cases for for staying in, regardless, you know, or or, or for fighting for the institution, um, despite its that the, the the reality of what you've described. But it makes me think of another, you know, another line from Dad, and a, I think a really important and uh, one to bring in with this conversation is. Um, 
he's, you know, I, th- I think the line is, maybe I'm just projecting it or making it up, but that um, soteriology always trumps ecclesiology. Yeah. Uh, and this so is a, good. you know, so, so the message about salvation and, and, you know, you know, real need, real salvation, real help is always going to, needs to be the center and where it ceases to be the center, where ecclesiology, where church for its own sake becomes the center. Um, that's where you get the, these forms of, of decadence and, um, control and, you know, just like with anything in the world, it, it's, um, where, whereas a lot of the best ecclesial institutions are, are kind of products of, um, soteriological um, uh, focus and emphasis. And it also gives you a way of maybe also getting through, you know, uh, what if you don't, you know, partly, and John, I would go to your church more than any church in the whole world. I would rather be going to your church on Sunday. Um, that's more me, I think, than anywhere. But um, it doesn't exist where I am <laughs> in the same kind of way. But that principle that Dad said is also freeing because it means that any church can be great, no matter what it's doing mm. in terms of its its style or its um, uh, uh, its liturgy or even its theology, if it's really preaching a saving message that really helps and emotionally connects, and that that, that has always been my actual principle for for deciding sort of where to where to end up with church. If if I get if I'm helped here, I can deal with all the other stuff, and, and if I'm not getting helped, even if everything else is exactly right. In the end, I'm going to have a hard time. So, what do you guys think of that as a totally? As a kind of I'm with you. I agree. I think it's a good principle. There's um, a line from Brahms, I think, although I used to think it was from Schopenhauer, that says, tradition is the kindling of the flame and not the worship of the ashes. And so much of my world as an Episcopal minister in an old mainline denomination, it looks like worship of the ashes, or it looks like trying to start a new flame. Yeah. And um, that's, that's often where... So it's tough. It gets to the point of like a little bit of what is the point of a sermon or what are you, what are you leaving church with? And, and one of the things, when you say soteriology trumps ecclesiology, one of the things I hear is that, um, you know, we, we, get, there's, there, we have the joke in our church that there's a, a type of Christian who's very fired up and excited about, uh, you know, kind of kingdom building or they, they've got a very sincere faith and they, they come to the, our church and they, the first Sunday they love it. Like, wow, you guys are really preaching the gospel because they heard something about salvation, usually, or the forgiveness of sins. And the second Sunday, they're like, yeah, that was really good, but you're going to get a slightly sideward glance at the end. And then the third Sunday, they're, they're like, they either don't come back or they're like, are all the sermons like this? Like, when are we, when are you getting to the next step? And um, what, what, you're, what, what, what our rector and what I believe to be true is that he, we can't risk not preaching the gospel of grace, the forgiveness of sins through the blood of Jesus. Jesus, in some form, not not repeating it word for word, but in some form every week, because you never know when the person's going to come in who is at their absolute end of their rope. And do you believe that that's what church is for, a refuge, in other words, a place where comfort is what's going to be, good news is going to be received? Or is it, you know, the classic schoolhouse for saints and to kind of form people? Now, it doesn't mean you can't instruct folks in the, in the, in the, uh, in whatever the yeah. in whatever you form them spiritually, and they're they're 
avenues for that, but it's, I don't know if it's the actual church service. I know when I go into a church, what I, I, I care, yes, I care about the music being good, though sometimes I like some misfits and some bad music up there because it means that, you know, it shouldn't be too perfect uh, if it's really the gospel. The, the, I, but I really, I want an engaged uh, uh, preacher or some or someone who's up there who I think believes it. It doesn't have to come through the preaching. Maybe it comes through in another way. But if they've got a really high view of human capability and human, uh, you know, holiness, as we we've talked about in another episode, some 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 high anthropology, you yeah. they'll start to resent the people there, and you can always pick up on that even if it's not there. You, they're resenting you for not for not coming enough, for not giving enough, for not believing enough, whatever it is you, you but then there's then there's lightning that strikes when you find someone who's humble and actually loves sinners and it almost their sermons can be gobbledygook almost and you can still receive something from them, some sort of compassion, some kind of heart connection, some sort of holy spirit thing because you get the sense that they actually believe this for themselves not just for the people in the pew. And I think that that's, there's, you know, I just poo-pooed the church as this dying thing, and I think, but there's, when you encounter that... I also think it's important to say there's a real difference between England and America here. And we tend to think Europe is just 10 years ahead of America Mm. or 20 years ahead of America. And I think, actually, there are a bunch of different factors so that what really connects culturally in the UK is very different than often what people respond to um, in in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So here we have a lot of sort of people who got burned by the church growing up. And when they experience a beautiful and somewhat mystical, vertical, um, very classic form of Christianity that they never encountered because they only experienced sort of dumb Christianity, uh, they're often incredibly smitten. And then separately, you have in the U.K. a culture where I think warmth conveys an enormous amount of revolutionary uh, approach to life, you know, where like inviting people to supper is like an incredibly daring and radically gracious move that you do not typically encounter on a daily basis. Um, Mm. And so culturally, we're dealing with a lot of different factors and not just a sort of timeline of what it looks like when secularism takes root. Mm. and people growing up later too. There, there's, there's, there's just in general people at not having as much time to ask the deeper questions. I think is a true thing. The, the culture of distraction is a very real factor. I, I, I don't have, I don't have, but I don't have any kind of sense that the gospel will become less trenchant or urgent. It's just, it's more. I, some of its expression. You said earlier, like we need to preach the gospel, you know, and because we never know which week it's going to be that the person's never heard it before. Yeah. And I would say we do know it's every week, and nobody. <laughs> And, great, yeah. and it's not that we're only doing it because there might be a newcomer. It's because every week there's a part of us that yeah. needs to be reconverted and reminded of God's grace. What and is uh, Richard Rodriguez says? I bring my inner atheist to church every single week. I don't. I don't need it. Yeah, or, or <laughs> Sam Shoemaker. Everyone either has a problem, is a problem, or lives with a problem. All I say to my congregation is, grace is at the center of everything we do, and if we can't ultimately. Um, peel back the layers of our motivation in any endeavor we have in the church and find that grace lies at the heart of it, then we need to rethink the thing. Um, And I just always try to sort of reprioritize things around that central theme. And I really think that's what makes the Reformation so great, is that it put grace front and center as the primary issue 
that the church was trying to wrestle with and convey to the world. And that's why I love the Reformation. Yeah, but it's, it's not a grace it's, is front when and center, we say it's primary. it almost sounds though like you're divinizing the word grace. That you, your grace is the is the revelation of God, you know, in Jesus Christ. So, I mean, that's the because yeah, not, but I talk about it in much less. I want it to sound just like this winsome word that people start even just thinking about in whatever terms. I use it fast and loose, and I use it with very little, like like solid, clear, spelled out content. You know, it's much more of a mechanism. Um, it's a word that just introduces a theme and a tone to the ministry. Yeah, and then I get it. I just, it sounds a little in. bit like, is grace at the center or is God at the center? And like, I, I don't think ultimately, yeah. I know people are looking for kindness and undeserving mm-hmm. and, and pardon and, and just welcome. But I also think underneath that, they're looking for God. And that's why because um, I, I I just say this as someone who gets accused accused mind, sometimes I can of saying use the words interchangeably. I know. You want to know the truth? But then I yeah. I hear some people be like, well, you know, I, uh, that, that, yeah. what's not gracious? The gospel is not grace. The gospel is Jesus Christ died to save sinners. Yeah, know? that that sort of stuff. And but I'm my, I don't even need yeah. that. I just want to say the reason we put grace at the center is because we're because that's our way of putting God at the center. Like that's that's what. Oh man, exactly. That's, that's, that's our. Uh, that's, but a very clear portrait of who God is. Yeah. You know. Um, what is distinct here? Who he is not. Yeah. Both with what Dave was saying about you know the potential you know the sort of the, the, the bumbling person who nevertheless um, speaks to you and uh, you know one thread of, of what this actually looks like in practice when it works especially in sort of unexpected ways is um, is is just if, you know does this person really believe in the reality of of God in a way that is actually affected changing the the that is informing what they're telling me right now and and clearly is coming out of something that they really believe that, I, that I, I'm always a sucker for sort of what I take to be sincere religiosity, partly because it seems so countercultural and so unexpected um, these days that I'm always so happy to see it. And, um, and I often actually, even with theologians that I read, if they say things I don't agree with, if they still have a sense of, of the, the reality of, of God, of the Christian God, as someone who is actually part of their life uh, in a way that... Yeah, then then that goes a really really long way um, for me, and, and and it often is a better heuristic than than their theology uh, in terms of whether I I find that I can get something out of what they're what they're saying. That's so just I always tell throwing that in. I always there. tell kids if they can't find a church that sort of preaches that both embodies and preaches grace, then find one that just embodies it and listen to another sermons because that that's going to be a lot more rare than the other than like. To me, I, that's why I always say go to the church that just sticks to the prayer book and gives you communion, and you'll get the gospel at least that way. Yeah. You know, so find the shortest sermon. I would say that in my also personal experience, John, which you asked about earlier. 
I've been more directly ministered to, like the voice of God coming through someone who is unassuming and unsophisticated and um, uh, lame, you could even say, than I have by someone who has all the credentials and um, checks the certain boxes. True. And I, I that it, because usually because that person catches you off guard, it's not, it's not again, it's it, it's not in, that it's interview not a, on the Mockingbird Sportscast with the chaplain from the Falcons. Yeah, it's not a new it formula. So it's the absence of a formula. Yeah, the, exactly. John, say what you what you mean by that. The, um, I think Ethan interviewed the the chaplain for the Atlanta Falcons, <laughs> and the guy is just so sincere, so sweet and kind, so open and vulnerable that you just want to go and try to become a member of the Atlanta Falcons just so that you can be a part of his ministry and get him to Skype you during coronavirus. You know, and there's just such a sincerity and like Simeon Jason Webster. The other thing I do want to say, though, is um, the truth is the church as an institution in any denomination you turn to is deeply flawed. But that doesn't mean, as dad might have sort of inferred, you know, uh, that it is entirely flawed. Yeah. Hopefully you, you'll never find a church that's great. And it's really important to experience committing to something that's not perfect. And that's a lot of what the experience of church is and should be for people. At the same time, if, if there's not a part of you that loves it, you can still probably find better than that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like, it doesn't have to be all love, but there better be fifty-one percent love. Did, cr- That's Christian Hasoy in the same uh, episode of the Mockingcast was. I asked him what what was his advice for people who are doing church, and he said, "Well, just do kind of do try to do the, the version of it that you love, <laughs> and like, you know." People come skateboard because they love it, and um, and I always remember in youth ministry there were those who were who were doing what they trying to do it the proper way, and there were those that seemed to actually being enjoying it, and the the ones who were actually enjoying it were the ones that were getting through, and were were actually. Co- conveying something. And so um, oftentimes when you get to a church, if if you're working at a church, you you feel like you have to do it in the same way the other person was doing it, or you have to do it in a completely different way for the sake of something new. You have to do it in a new way in order to be true to you so that you stay engaged with it. And that's the way that other people will stay engaged, I I, I believe. Um, And hopefully it's in keeping with a deeper tradition. but yeah, John, I, I've had, definitely had the experience of people thinking that um, uh, by, by being a member of any denomination, you're saying that uh, there are no problems in that denomination or that um, there aren't things that other denominations do better because there, it's yeah. always a matter. I always feel like it's yeah. a matter of picking um, which uh, dysfunctions you, you're willing to put up with. Do, do you want to be in a place that's micromanaging you constantly but has maybe a clearer theology or do you want to be in a place where there's a little more liberty and a, a, this kind of tradition or you want to be in a place that tends to attract these types of people but not those and, and you kind of just have to figure out which which version of that uh, you're going to um, make peace with or you're going to watch God work through because I, I, you tell you what the summer camp parachurch ministry that that worked with me that, that sort of saved my life once I got on the inside, I saw a gazillion problems, and I experienced some of them, and it hurt me in certain ways, and, and all these things. And yet, God used it and continues to use it, and that's the kind of miracle, is that none of these churches, none of these ministries are going to be perfect. In fact... Sure, it's screwed up, it's, but it's also got it's been going for 2,000 years. Show me a better institution. Mm. You know what I mean? The only one I've found, my favorite ecclesiology, just I'll throw this out there, is AA, yeah. where there's true, true 
equality and there's no ability for one person to have more power than another. And that's where I think we get into trouble. Power and money is when and hierarchy. They, they, they've got that figured out, don't they? Yeah, it's just you can never technically be standing on more solid ground than somebody else. Um, I love that. It's like the best of Quakerism. I've never felt I had much luxury of choice in relation to church, and I've constantly been sort of dealing with whatever options are sort of around me immediately. Maybe other people feel that way um, as well. And, and uh, you know, if I think too hard about it, it makes me wish I were, you know, in places that are where I would really want to go to the churches uh, in the way that I grew up with and everything. But um, but I have found the kinds of things, you know, just someone who actually is kind, someone who actually cares about what they're saying, who actually, where God is really in some way understood to be a reality. Um, those things have gotten me a surprisingly long way, mm. um, I would I would say. In terms of uh, images and, you know, um, so uh, George Eliot, uh, the novelist, wrote a, a novella pretty early on, and she had gone through a quite kind of intense um, evangelical phase, I think, earlier in her life, and wrote this remarkable novel where I think she the standard view is that she'd lost her faith at this point, but she writes as if it's the most profound novel of Christian conversion uh, that I I know. Um, you know, she's an incredibly psychologically insightful person, really sympathetically getting to the heart of how a, a woman in great distress with a, in a terrible marriage who has her own self-destructive problems gets genuinely helped by the new curate in town. The new minister who's arrived, who's been influenced, who's come from Cambridge, uh, where he's... Uh, been influenced by Charles Simeon in an evangelical direction, but but the key to the guy's ministry that George Eliot draws out so beautifully is uh, is that he himself came into ministry out of his own brokenness and out of his a particular sin that he committed. Mm. It was very serious, and so he is able to communicate to her at the key moment. She has all of her walls up, and yet she's in absolute agony, and he is able to communicate to her that he understands, and that he is sincere. Uh, and that he's not judging her or turning her into a project. And the result is that when he then presents the gospel in a relatively conventional sort of way, it completely changes. Rather than just being dead, dry words, it completely changes her uh, life. And so that kind of principle, there's something about a, a, a kind of um, authenticity and humility from life and a sense of the reality of God's goodness that that, that turns you outward towards others, that, that when I find churches that have that, um, and uh, they, uh, uh, they're, what, they're the ones I go to. Mm. Wow. John, what do, what do, you, th- they, what do you say? I, I'm just going to throw out a few movies um, that I think deal with a lot of the themes we've talked about. I'll start lowbrow, and uh, if you haven't watched The Book of Eli with Denzel Washington, especially the conversion of Mila, what's her name? Jozevich. Uh, is that her name? Yeah, I think so. The, the girl who starred in Forgetting Sarah Marshall as well. Um, anyway, she's in it. And she just plays this young person who encounters a Christian with deep convictions and has total conversion. And it's a wonderful movie that just makes Christianity so cool. And yet, really, I think, holds to the main things in a fun uh, You're talking action. about M- Mila Kunis, yeah. 
Mila Kunis, yeah. that's it. Her, her, the, the character of Mila Kunis as she encounters the blind sort of kung fu protector of the last Bible in the world of Denzel Washington, you know, is very cool. On a highbrow note, the movie Rome, Open City by Rossellini is for me the be-all and end-all portrait of real Christianity and ministry. And I made the associate I work with watch the entire thing with me in Italian with the subtitles just recently on our retreat because it opens with a minister who is there seen at the beginning of the movie playing soccer with a bunch of kids, a, a Catholic priest. Mm. And um, by the end, you realize he is uh, in the deepest trenches of life and is a wonderful man and, uh, and conveys all of the depth of the Christian message in his own witness that is human and deep all at the same time. Oh, uh, then there's another one like it called Letters to Father Jacob. It's a Finnish movie. I highly recommend it for a portrait of ministry. Um, and then The Bishop's Wife. If people, you know, everybody's seen It's a Wonderful Life, and it's a wonderful movie. Um, if you want to see a sort of Christian version, a church version, see The Bishop's Wife, which is unbelievable. And it brings all of these themes of the church when it becomes idolized as an entity unto itself versus when the angel, who is the embodiment of the true religion and of God's actual active grace in the world, that movie is, it never seeks, like stops speaking. And it's just full of all the same good feelings you get from It's a Wonderful Life. And the last one, a little more obscure English movie, The Holly and the Ivy, all about a minister who has completely lost touch with his family. And when all of the family problems come home to roost at Christmas time, they, he rediscovers the heart of his ministry and his family discover for the first time that dad's Christianity was not something taking him away from them, but enabling him to ultimately be there for them, the holly and the ivy. It's mm. deeply moving. So that's a, that's a good list. Uh, that's a great list. I'll say one, one more current film. I mean, there's The Apostle, which is an incredible vision of an, of an actual sinful uh, evangelist who um, does through whom God is sort of delivers people as well as uh, he himself, um, which I've always found to be powerful. I would love the movie oh, Calvary with Brendan Gleeson. You know, who's the who's the Irish? Um, uh, it holds up. I almost mentioned it a minute ago. It's, it it's really up. good, and it, it's a talk about a, a ministry as being almost martyrdom, but uh, someone. Uh, what can be done if, if with one one man who actually believes what he's talking about um, in in some respect with a, with a with a deeply entrenched difficult place uh, community and um, but I always I go to music and there's a couple of songs I'll just recommend that uh, you know there's there's plenty of songs you can find about church or things like that I I love it always. Um, their song "Take Me to Church," which is not the Hosier song, but the Sinead O'Connor one, uh, where she sings. I mean, she, Sinead O'Connor's got a very strange relationship to the church, having you know, torn up the picture of the Pope, and now I think converted to like Shiite or Sunni Islam, something. But she wrote a song called "Take Me to Church." Uh, I've done so many bad things; it hurts. Yeah, get me to church, but not the ones that hurt. And then there's the the. Believe it or not, Bob Dylan, who's written a lot of great songs about Christianity and about Jesus, he but his son Jacob, who is the head of the Wallflowers, that band, you know, One Headlight and 10th Avenue Heartache um, from the 90s, he had something happen to him. And he wrote a song called Hospital for Sinners. And it's fantastic. And it's from a Wallflowers record that came out, I think, in like 2012. 
and he it's like kind of a bluesy song but it's he all it is is about church I think that's it for this time. Quite a lot there. Uh, talk to you both uh, real soon. And thank you so much as always. Bye, guys. Those, 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 those. Thanks so much for listening to us do our thing. We hope you've enjoyed it. We do invite you to leave a rating or a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts if you've enjoyed this. And please tell your friends about it. Audio production was provided by TJ Hester. And you can find Mockingbird on the web at www.mbird.com. See you next time. 